So here's a happy death statistic. 10 out of 10 people die straight up. Kind of depressing. Sometimes people die in crazy ways. Like for instance, 450 people each year die falling out of bed. That, I feel like that one could happen to me. Um, 34 people die each year due to tap water being too hot. A uh, hundred people each year die in Russia alone from falling icicles. Did your parents ever tell you like when you're like out in the snow, they're like, don't touch the icicles because they could stab you in the face. Like no one's told you that? My parents always did. Well, winter camp, guys. Um, vending machines have killed 37 people in seven years. And this one's pretty intense. Um, doctors messy handwriting. You know, like when doctors prescribe stuff, it's all like super chicken scratch. The writing the wrong prescriptions for people or prescriptions that couldn't be read properly, that's caused 7,000 deaths yearly. That's 35% more deaths than all the soldiers who died in the entire Iraq war. So it's intense. Death is a universal problem. That means we all face it, we all go through it. This is a quote from uh, Pastor Vaughn Roberts. He says, death is a constant reminder of our inability to control our humanness. We don't like it. So we've disguised the effects of aging. We can get extensive cosmetic surgery. We can buy Botox injections. We can hide the fact that we're getting older. We can delay death through the amazing advancement in medical sciences, but we can never actually defeat death. Our achievements and successes don't matter. As we walk through life, death is an insistent voice in our ear constantly saying to us, I'll get you in the end, your mind. If I'm honest, death scares me. Has anyone here ever had a near-death experience? Anybody? Yeah, it's intense. I remember when I was a little kid, I was water skiing. Yeah, like the thought of me water skiing probably shocks you because I don't do anything crazy or active anymore. But when I was like seven, I was water skiing. And what happened was I ended up falling in the water and the cord for the skis ended up wrapping around my neck and like dragging me through the water. And so I almost drowned. My mom drove, she dove into the water and saved me, which was great. But I mean, I always think back to that moment. It's like, man, I could have died. I think the scariness of death for me is just this thought of like dying. You're, you're emptying yourself of yourself. Like when you die, it's like everything that is you disappears and you're swallowed up into the grave. You're emptied and swallowed up. I mean, death is also depressing. Death is seriously depressing. I, I heard this really depressing story of a girl who ends up like slicing her wrists to commit suicide. And her brother finds her, calls the ambulance, gets her into an ambulance, and he's following the car. And then he ends up getting in a car accident. So she dies, and he dies trying to save her. Death, death is depressing. It's something that we all face. Many of us have had relatives and friends who have died and we've seen these things happen. And so I think when it comes to the problem of death, we need to see what does Jesus have to say about the problem of death? So let's look at John 11. We're gonna look at verses one through 16 and you can follow along with the video, but the verses will be covered in the video. So here we go. Many people came to him. John performed no miracles, they said. But everything he said about this man was true, and many people there believed in him. A man named Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, became sick. 
Bethany was the town where Mary and her sister Martha lived. This Mary was the one who poured the perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. The sisters sent Jesus the message. Lord, your dear friend is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, the final result of this sickness will not be the death of Lazarus. This has happened in order to bring glory to God, and it will be the means by which the Son of God will receive glory. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he received the news that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Teacher, just a short time ago, the people there wanted to stone you. And are you planning to go back? A day has 12 hours, doesn't it? So those who walk in broad daylight do not stumble, for they see the light of this world. But if they walk during the night, they stumble because they have no light. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and wake him up. If he is asleep, Lord, he will get well. Jesus meant that Lazarus had died, but they thought he meant natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I am glad that I was not with him, so that you will believe. Let us go to him. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us all go along with the teacher, so that we may die with him. Such an encouraging statement. Let's all go, so we can die too. Thomas thinks they're doomed. He thinks, you know, we're going to go, and Jesus is going to get stoned, and we're all going to get stoned, we're all going to die. And, I mean, honestly, if, like, right away, for me, I don't know about you, but if I was a part of this story... I would be frustrated. Like, does anyone, anybody feel that? Like, yeah, yeah, I would be frustrated with Jesus because, well, for one, okay, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, this is a family that's really close to Jesus, some of his best friends. I don't know about you, but like, if I heard one of my best friends was dying, I'd be there. My best friend, Trevor Daigle, is in England right now. I can't afford to go to England, but if I heard he was dying, like, I would find a way. I would fly over there right away. Well, Jesus hears that his one of his best friends, this guy named Lazarus, is dying. Does he right away go? No, he waits two days. I mean, if I'm anybody in that story, I'm thinking, Jesus, how is this a good idea? This is a terrible idea. Have you ever wanted, like, I just want you guys to think and put yourself in the story. Have you ever wanted God to do something and he says, wait? Have you ever been there? It's tough. It's frustrating. And that brings us to our first point. Jesus is working even when you can't see it. I remember growing up, I had a grandpa. Um, many of you guys know my grandpa, Tony, on my, my dad's side. He's here around the church. He's this jolly old, amazing man. Um, he's in his 80s. He's still going strong. Um, but my grandpa on my mom's side, Ron, um, I'm partially named after him, Aaron. So, yeah, <laughs> Grandpa Ron. Um, his entire life, he was a heavy drinker, 
heavy smoker to the point that he was poisoning his body. And it was so hard waiting. Just like, when is he going to accept Jesus? That's what we always wondered. Grandpa, when are you going to accept Jesus? And he said, I don't need it. I don't need Jesus. I don't need him. I got my own thing going. I got my own jobs, my own money. He just, he felt like he didn't need the Lord and his life was just consumed by sin. He was always running. He was always running from people who wanted to collect his money and shifty business deals. And he ended up in Alaska hiding out from the government. Like he was just this crazy guy, crazy guy. And for years we prayed and we're like, God, what are you doing? And then he ends up slipping one day and falling. This is a couple years ago. And he goes to the doctor and they look at him and they're like, you, you have like crazy lung cancer, like so bad that you might not last another day. And at that point, like I'm sitting there, I'm like, God, what are you doing? Like we've been praying for him for years and now he's gonna die. And I remember literally days before he died, he called a pastor into his hospital room and he asked to receive Jesus. And it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, God, you were doing something. Even though I didn't realize it, all of those years, you were seeking after my grandpa. Look at verse four. In verse four, Jesus says, the sickness of Lazarus, it's not gonna lead to death. It's for God's glory. Stop right there. Like for God's glory? I think some of you, if you're really honest with yourself, you might actually wrestle with a statement like that. Your trial, what you're going through is for God's glory. So that kind of sounds like, like, man, like you might ask like, God, do you abuse us so that you can get praise? Like, do you take advantage of us and put us in situations that are like tough so that you can get glory? What does that mean? It's like, if there was a guy who constantly tied people to train tracks just so he could rescue them in front of a crowd, would we think that guy's a hero or a villain? We'd be like, That's, that guy's straight up villain. So is that an accurate picture of God? Listen guys, this is really important. God doesn't cause evil any more than light causes darkness. There is evil in our world. God doesn't cause it, he defeats it. Think back to page one of the Bible. What's God's plan from page one? His plan is have a family, us, and rule the world with them. That's, that's a great plan. But what happens on page two or three of the Bible? Evil, sin, separation, and, and right from the start, God's plan has always been rescuing people. It has always been saving as many people as he can, bringing as many people into the family as possible. So in verse four, when God says this sickness will bring glory to God, it's not God abusing his children to get praise. It's God taking something Satan meant for evil and turning into a miracle that'll draw people into the family. God says that life will always be full of pain, but God wants you to take your pain and turn it into the kingdom's game. There's actually a young lady who's a part of this group, and I remember um, at summer camp um, just getting the phone call that her grandpa had passed away. And uh, it was just this horrible, like devastating moment, like having to tell her, it, it, was, like, it was terrible. But then I remember she came in on the night that we did our night of worship, and she shared what she was going through and how God brought her through that and how God like touched her and spoke to her through her grandpa's passing and how God, even though it was their family's darkest moment, like God brought them through the storm and God used that testimony. And that night there was about two or three kids that got saved and gave their life to Jesus. I'm just trying to show you guys that the pain that you go through, it's not, it's not for nothing. 
God uses it. He has a plan. He loves you. He's working even when you can't see it. So why wait two days? Well, remember, he's working all the time. But, but, the, but why? The question is why? Well, the Jews had this belief. They said it takes four days for the soul to leave the body. That's what they thought. So when you died, you were like not really dead until four days had passed. So think about it. Jesus has a two-day journey to make. He gets the news, and instead of leaving right away, he waits two days. Two plus two equals four. So he shows up right at the point where they're like, oh, Lazarus is so dead that there's nothing we could do to bring him back. And it's this thing where he's trying to prove God's power. And I think it's, it's brilliant. Do you guys remember the story of Elijah? Anybody? Elijah? Remember when he had to call down the fire, right, on the sacrifice? So the great thing about that story, I don't know if you caught it when you read the story, but, you know, you've got all these prophets of Baal, and they're jumping around cutting themselves and doing weird dances, and they're doing all this show. Elijah goes to the altar, and he dumps water on it, like, 20 times. He like digs a little moat around it and like fit, like he, he literally surrounds this altar with water. Now, why did he do that? The, it, the reason's brilliant because he's trying to show them like, hey, just so you know, I'm not a magician. Like I can't like, I, I'm, not, I'm not making a trick here. I'm not like pouring lighter fluid on the altar and tossing a match. He was covering the altar with so much water that people would look at it and go, okay, there's no way this thing could light on fire. When you have something so wet, something so drenched, there's no way that even if you literally flamethrowered it, there's no way it could light up. And then God calls the fire down and it consumes the altar. It consumes the water and the moat. Like it's just, it's one of those moments that just you sit back and you're like, there was nothing we could do, but God proved himself. That's what Jesus is doing. He, he waits four days because he doesn't want anyone to think that Jesus is a magician or that he tapped into the spiritual realm within the three-day window. He does it to show people when hope was completely lost and there was absolutely no hope left. God comes through. I love that. In verse 8, Jesus says, well, the disciples say, Lord, are you really going to go back to where the people are trying to kill you? And Jesus says, I'm willing to risk death in order to defeat death. He says, the time is now. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he said, if physical death is the price that I must pay to free my white brothers and sisters from a permanent death of the spirit, there is nothing that can be more redemptive. I think that's so great. Martin Luther King Jr., if you guys don't know his story, he was this revolutionary, but he didn't fight back with violence. He actually loved his enemies. The, the white people at the time in the civil rights movement who were so against black people, just so violent and racist and full of hatred, Martin Luther King Jr.'s response was to love them, to point them to Jesus. And that's amazing words for a man to say, but how much more amazing is it for a God to say that he will love his enemies when he has every right just to throw lightning bolts at them? God is he's amazing. In verse 11, Lazarus, Jesus says, is sleeping. He says, Lazarus sleeps and I'm going to wake him. And then the disciples say, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll wake up. And it's because they're dumb. Jesus is always speaking in metaphor and the disciples are never really reading through the lines. But is it, it's, it's frustrating though. Because again, remember, Jesus says, hey, Lazarus is dead. What did he just say in verse four? He said, this sickness will not lead to what? Death. And now he's like, oh, he's dead. If I was a disciple, I'd be really frustrated. I'd be like, Jesus, you said this sickness wouldn't lead to death. Remember, he's always working even when you can't see it, even when you don't understand. Jesus knew that death is not the end. 
I remember hearing the story of a young boy who got very, very sick. And he was dying from a terminal disease. And his parents knew that death was coming. And the kid's lying in bed. And his mom and dad are they're sitting there by the bedside. And the kid looks up at the mom and dad and says, Mom and dad, I'm really scared. Like, what happens when I die? And the parents are trying to think of a way they can put it to the kid. And they believe in Jesus. And so they say to the kid, they say, son, you know when you fall asleep on the couch and then your dad comes and he picks you up in his arms and he takes you to that bedroom that he built for you with his own two hands? It's going to be like that. You fall asleep and then you'll be taken to the room that was built for you and then you'll wake up and then we'll play. I think that's, that's such a great story because that's the hope that we have as Christians. When we die, God will look at us and he'll say, it's, you're asleep, but I'm going to take you to the room I built for you, and then I'm going to wake you up, and then we're going to keep going. It's the hope of the resurrection. Let's look, let's look at the next video. Um, this is verse 17 through 27. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been buried four days before. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Judeans had come to see Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. If you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask him for. Your brother will rise to life. I know that he will rise to life on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live, even though they die. And those who live and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? I do believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After Martha said this, she went back and called her sister Mary privately. So Jesus has this moment with Martha, Lazarus' sister. She shows up and she says, Jesus, he's dead. If you would have been here, you could have saved him. And Jesus responds, with kind of like this very like churchy kind of Christian answer that you would almost hear if you had a relative who died and you were sad, uh, you know, uh, he will rise. You know, when, when we have relatives who pass, you know, a lot of times people in the church would say to us like, well, you know, like one day you'll be in heaven with them. It's kind of this, this answer that Martha probably felt like was very stock. Well, then Martha says, well, Jesus, yeah, I know he will rise on the last day when the resurrection comes, but I miss him now. And Jesus responds, Listen, don't miss this. Jesus' response is, I am the resurrection and the life. Stop waiting. I'm here right now. My second point is Jesus is committed to resurrection. The Jews had this belief about the last day. And the last day, the very last day of history, the ones who follow God will be resurrected. And that reminds me of a lot about our belief in the rapture as Christians. And if you've grown up in the church like me, maybe you've Maybe you've kind of got it mixed up because you think, you know, life is hard. I stink. Sin stinks. But at least one day the rapture is happening and I can get away from all of this. I'll be resurrected. Listen, I think Jesus would say to you what he said to her. I am the resurrection 
I'm here right now. Guys, I believe the rapture is coming. Absolutely. One day we will be perfect. But Jesus wants to do things in your life right now. Look at, look at this quote. This, this quote comes from uh, Norman Cousins. He says, death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us while we live. And this is so true. From the moment you are born, your sin nature corrupts you. And every day that you choose to not follow Jesus, a little piece of your heart and soul dies. John Foreman of Switchfoot wrote these great lyrics. I think this is so key. He says, Father time steals our days like a thief. There's no price that I wouldn't pay to get some relief. I become an empty shell of a man I don't like so well. I am a living, breathing hell. Come on and resurrect me. Guys, this is, this is so key. Like every time we sin, we are allowing ourselves to take place in the kingdom of hell. Every time we choose to go against God, every week that you go by without connecting with Jesus, every day that you, or every week, every month that you go by not picking up your Bible, not reading, and just giving into your flesh, just giving into your desires, you are literally allowing hell to enter into your heart and corrupt it. We are in need of a resurrection. Hell is not something we should just be afraid of, a place that we go when we die. Sure, if you're saved, you're not going to go there, but the power of hell can corrupt you and ruin your opportunity to live a Christ-filled life. So how do we get resurrection? Look at what the Bible says. In Luke 9, verse 23 through 24, it says, Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus calls us to lose our life, to take up our cross daily. What does it mean to take up your cross? Does it mean to walk with something heavy? No. When Jesus took up his cross, what was the purpose? So he could what on it? So he could die, exactly. So for us, when Jesus says, take up your cross, he doesn't just say, when you wake up, make sure you're a Christian. No, he says, take up him and die to yourself. Every day when you wake up, you have to make a decision. Is today gonna be about me or is it going to be about Jesus? Am I going to be selfish today or am I going to love my family? If I, am I gonna just do what I want or am I actually going to do my schoolwork? Am, am I going to listen to my parents or am I just going to follow after my flesh? It's, it's a hard decision to make. As Christians, we're still called to make the decision to die every day. And here's the thing. You can be saved and still choose to live a life that's full of death. Honestly, you can. You can be a zombie Christian. But Jesus calls you to die to yourself so that you can be alive to him. He calls you to carry his life in you. Have you ever been around someone who is so full of the love and life of Jesus that you just were like, I want to be like that? Have you ever been around someone like that? I have. And those are the people. They're not faking it. You can tell spirituality can be so fake, but there's people in my life where I'm around them and I'm, it's like, you know, I know that guy's a sinner because I've seen him mess up, but I know he follows Jesus. The heart and the love and the passion of Jesus are in his heart, and I want to be like that. We have to die daily. Jesus invites us to live in him. Listen, if you struggle with the challenge of dying daily, it's because you don't realize the freedom, joy, and power that comes with a resurrected life. He's committed daily to helping you live this resurrected life. 
This is uh, Kevin Berthia, and he was talked out of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge by that police officer in 2005, but he has since become an advocate for suicide prevention and has started his own family. This, this is about redemption. This is a man who is going to end his life, and now he spends it helping others. Jesus wants to turn your life around, too. Some of you guys, you're afraid of following Jesus. I mean, you know you're saved, but you're afraid of really, truly committing because you feel like you're going to lose your identity. But listen, Jesus made you to be who you are. All those things about your personality that people like, all those things about you, all those qualities that people enjoy about you, those are God-given qualities. God doesn't want to steal your identity. He just wants to take everything holding your identity back. He wants to take every weight and sin and chuck it off that bridge so that you can be the truly alive, on fire, amazing person that God has made you to be. Let's look at verse 28 through 37. The teacher's here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and hurried out to meet him. Jesus had not yet arrived in the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The people who were in the house with Mary comforting her followed her when they saw her get up and hurry out. They thought that she was going to the grave to weep there. Mary arrived where Jesus was, and as soon as she saw him, she fell at his feet. saw her weeping, and he saw how the people with her were weeping also. His heart was touched, and he was deeply moved. Have you buried him? Come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. See how much he loved him, the people said. But some of them said, He gave sight to the blind man, didn't he? Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? Did you? I mean, did you catch it? I mean, I, I know it's. I know it's like in school. In, how many of you guys went to Christian school? Anybody? Like, you know, when you're told you have to memorize a verse, your favorite verse to memorize is Jesus wept, right? And you come in, you're like, yeah, I did it. I memorized the verse. And we just missed this verse. I mean, guys, I mean, he, Jesus, he, he wept. I mean, we've heard it a million times, but think about that, really. Jesus wept. He knew what was gonna happen. I mean, spoiler alert, but Lazarus gets raised from the dead. That's literally, like when you start this chapter, it says the raising of Lazarus. So like, there's, there's, there's no surprise here. Jesus knows what's gonna happen. I mean, if, if, if I am driving my car and it gets wrecked, 
I'm gonna be sad. Like, I, I might shed a tear because even though I hate that car, which you guys know, I'm like, I don't have a car anymore. I don't have like insurance to cover this. Like, what? Uh. But if I know, if I, if I can see into the future and I know I'm gonna get the car of my dreams, like a giant Volkswagen bus, I'm stoked. I'm not gonna be crying. If I know what's gonna happen, I'm not gonna cry. So Jesus knows what's gonna happen to Lazarus. So why does he cry? Does Jesus waste his tears? Listen, Jesus doesn't waste anything. He's always intentional. So the question we'd wanna ask Jesus right now is, Lord, I wanna know why you cried. And I was praying over this and I was asking, Lord, show me why Jesus cried even though he knew what was gonna happen. And the answer the Lord gave me is this, and I think some of you guys maybe need to hear this today. God's love is always now. He knows everything. He knows the past, present, and future. But he loves us right now in the moment. And that's crazy love. Like if, if I were God, like listen, if, if I were God and I knew you were going to mess up in your 40s, like let's say when you hit 41, I just know because I'm God, you're going to do something terrible. You are going to do something horrendous at 40. Well, if I knew that now, like if you wake up and you're trying to talk to me or trying to pray, you're gonna be like, Lord, good morning. And I'm gonna be like, what do you want? And you're gonna be like, Lord, I'm just praying. And you're like, oh, praying, huh? Sinner. I'm gonna be mad at you. And you're gonna be like, Lord, it's my birthday. I'm like, I don't care. Cause you're gonna do something really bad when you're 40. And you'd be like, but Lord, it's my birthday. I'm 16 now. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like. This is crazy. If you knew your best friend was gonna stab you tomorrow, you would not wanna hang out with that person anymore. It's amazing love. His love for us is right now. He knows what you're gonna do tomorrow. He knows what you're gonna do next week. He knows the worst thing. Like he knows your current worst sin, that thing that you try to hide and forget. He also knows the worst sin you're gonna do in the future and he still loves you right now. And that's good news for a broken world. There is in 2011, an earthquake in Japan that killed over 15,000 people and devastated the country. And I believe in that moment, in the right now of that moment, God was crying with the people of Japan. This is a picture of an orphan child in the wake or of the Haiti earthquake of 2010. I believe in that moment, God saw that little girl and he cried for her. This is a young person hanging by a thread over the flooding Ganges River in 2013, which killed thousands of people. And I think in that moment, God saw that person and cared. This is a picture of a Chinese soldier being drafted into the military, never facing war before, getting ready to go off into battle. I believe God saw those tears. This is John Fai Jr. at the funeral of his father and younger brother, just two months after his mother died of cancer. He was 13 years old. And I believe in that moment, God saw that little boy and he cared in the right now. God's love is always now. Listen, if you're struggling today, if you're going through difficulties today, I want you guys, honestly, honestly, I love you guys. I want you guys to know, God's love for you is right now, regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of what you will do in the future, he has crazy love for you and it is right now. 
in Psalm 56, in a paraphrased version, verse 8, says, tears are prayers too. They can travel to God when we can't speak. And I love that translation. I, I love that way of putting it. Because sometimes you just, you cry, and you don't have words, and you're facing death or destruction or sin, and you just, you don't have words. And you might even feel like you're not spiritual enough because all you can do is cry. You don't want to read your Bible, and you don't want to pray because you're just so brokenhearted. God receives those tears. He understands. He knows every tear you cry. The Bible says he bottles up those tears. No matter what you're facing, big or small, life or death, his love for you is right now. And it reminds me of a story of an Amish Christian village. And in this village, a gunman came in. Do you, do you guys know what an Amish village is? It's, it's, it's these Christians um, who've decided to kind of live their own separate life. They don't have electricity or technology. They kind of like run farms and um, do that kind of thing. Kind of like a little house on the prairie, you know. Um, I don't know if you watched that show. Well, in this Amish village, um, there was a Christian school. It was a girls' school. They had separate girls and boys' school. And this just random guy comes into the school and just kills a bunch of the little girls, just takes them out with a gun, and then he kills himself. Think about how angry, hopeless, and depressed you would be if you were the family members of those little girls. But what happens next is amazing because the parents and the siblings and the neighbors and the friends of those little girls who died, they come to the funeral of the guy who killed them. Not to throw things, not to hold angry protest signs. They actually came and they prayed for the family members of the man who did the killings. They prayed that God would give them peace, that God would help them in their time of trouble losing a loved one. Can you, can you, I mean, I just, I can't believe that. Like, I can't, honestly, guys, when I see this kind of love, I just can't believe it. They, they could have said, they could have said, I can't forgive now because I need time to forget the pain. But that's not what these villagers said. They realized that God's love is right now. God's forgiveness is right now. I think God's trying to teach some of us here that today. Let's look at the last section, verses 38 through 44. Deeply moved once more, Jesus went to the tomb, which was a cave with a stone placed at the entrance. Take the stone away. There will be a bad smell, Lord. He has been buried four days. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? They took the stone away. Jesus looked up. I thank you, Father, that you listened to me. I know that you always listen to me. But I say this for the sake of the people here, so that they will believe that you sent me. After he had said this, he called out in a loud voice, 
he came out. His hands and feet wrapped in grave clothes and with a cloth round his face. Untie him and let him go. Many of the people who had come to visit Mary saw what Jesus did and they believed in him. Okay, so guys, we all like know these stories, but can I just say that it's really cool. <laughs> is anyone with me? Like God is great. Like he does great things. Like we're church kids, we grew up hearing this, but raising someone from the dead, like please don't just be like, oh cool, he raised someone from the dead. Like can we just like leave here today being excited about who Jesus is and the fact, I mean, he, he's, he's proving he has the power over death. And I'm sure that when Jesus rose from the dead after Easter, which is coming up, people believed it because they saw what he did. They saw the empty tomb here. You see, this is my last point. Jesus didn't just raise a man. Jesus was declaring war on death itself. All right. This is the last point. Stay with me on this, guys. For a long time, Jesus hid his healings. If you guys are students of the gospel, you'll know. Jesus would heal blind men. He'd heal people with leprosy. And they'd say, I want to go tell people. And Jesus would say, no, 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 don't tell anybody. And it's like, but like, isn't that what street witnessing is all about? Like Jesus does something in your, your life and you go tell people. And Jesus is like, not yet. Jesus knew that if the word got out that he was doing these things, people would come after him to kill him. At this point in the story, Jesus is ready for that. He's like, I am ready to risk death because I am declaring war on death. He's making a statement out in the open. For those of you here today who are afraid of death or you're struggling with the idea of death, or even though you're a Christian, maybe like me when I was in junior high and high school, I still was in the back of my mind subconsciously afraid of the pain and the mystery of dying. Listen, since the moment death showed up in the story. Remember, page one of the Bible. Is death a part of the picture? No, page one of the Bible, death is nowhere in the picture. And then what happens? The snake slithers up, he, con he uh, convinces Adam and Eve to sin, and from that moment, death enters the picture. Death was an unwanted enemy. It was not supposed to be a part of the story. It was not a part of the plan. And from page one, two, and three of the Bible, Jesus was declaring war on death. He wanted to make a way so that people who follow him will never die. That's right. I, you might say, but I know people who follow Jesus and they did die. Well, here's the truth. Those people that you know who are Jesus followers who died, they're actually more alive than you and me right now. They are more alive than they have ever been in their life because this is what the Bible says. Our Bibles say that our bodies are not us. We are not our Bibles. Our spirit, our, sorry, we are not our bodies. Our spirit and our soul is us. That is who we are. Our body is like a tent. It's like a container that we live in. And when we die, our souls have to go somewhere. Without Jesus, our souls die and they're separated from God forever in hell. People will go through the first physical death and then the spiritual one.
But because of what Jesus did on the cross, even though our bodies can die, our souls will live forever. And it's not just going to be like disembodied spirit souls floating up in space somewhere. No, the Bible says our souls go to heaven. We see Jesus. We get new bodies. And then we come back to earth. And heaven smashes into earth to resurrect the dead planet. And then all evil and death will be destroyed. And we will rule the world with God the way it was supposed to be back in the beginning. It's this awesome epic story of resurrection. It's it's so good. Jesus is committed to destroying death. He's declared war on death. You know, recently I declared war on death in a way. Um, it was a Wednesday night. Trevor knows what I'm going to say. It was a Wednesday night. And um, the, you know when you guys come over on Wednesday, sometimes you guys leave the door open? Well, sometimes bugs get in. And this is normal. This happens. Well, Around the same time we had a Wednesday night where the door kept getting open, there was a dead mouse in our wall that was like rotting, you know, just the perfect image of death, just completely decomposing and it smelled really bad and we were setting up like literally like 20 diffusers in our house trying to lighten up the smell. Well, Brooklyn started noticing that there were flies in the house and once in a while there are flies in the house and you know, being a typical dude, you know, like when uh, someone asks you to check into something, I, being a typical dude, I was just like, uh, yeah, I mean, flies are gonna fly, what can we do? I was thinking there was just like two flies in the house. That's what I thought. I'd see them fly by and I'd go, eh, they'll die. They're like, flies live for 24 hours, right? Like, that's, that's what I like learned when I was in third grade. So that's what I thought. Flies live for 24 hours. Well, the next day, we started to notice more flies. And still, I was like sitting on the couch watching TV and I'm like, eh, they'll die. Like, they're, they're gonna die. They're gonna be dead soon. The next day, there's like, this is, this is actually what did it. I've never been so mad in my life. Like, you guys know me. I don't get mad. I was so mad. I went into the bathroom. There's like five flies in the bathroom. I looked down at my toothbrush and there are two flies like making out with my toothbrush. Just like on it, like going to town. Like I literally have never been so, I, I, went, I went out to Brooklyn. I was like, stay in the room. And she's like, what's going on? I was like, it, I am declaring war on these flies. And this is what I look like. I, I covered my eyes to protect them from the poisonous spray. I wrapped a scarf around me so that I wouldn't breathe in the toxins. I grabbed a fly swatter and I turned on Queen's hit song, Another One Bites the Dust, as loud as I could. And I spent the next three hours hunting down. Guys, there were like 40 flies, no joke. 40 flies. I went all out. I sprayed and I swatted. I took uh, the outdoor electric bug zapper and I put it on my kitchen table and I turned off all the lights and I sat in the corner and I just waited. And every time I heard a I was like, yeah, another one bites the dust. Like I was, oh my gosh, guys. I declared war on death in that moment. It was like death to flies. Flies represent death. They come for death things. Now they're going to be dead. And it was disgusting and terrible, but I made it through and I killed them all. And now, now, anytime one fly comes to my house, I drop everything. I'm like, you're going down, sucker. Like I, I take them out. Okay. Listen, uh, this is something I think is important for us to get. 
In Ephesians 5:14, it says, therefore, awake, O sleeper. Remember, that was our camp theme a while ago. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You can be here today, and you can know that you're alive, and you're saved in Christ, and everything is good in that way. But here's what you need to get. Remember me with the flies? Remember I let, like, one fly in, and then two flies in, and then three flies, and I didn't think it was a big deal? What happened? They what? Multiplied. Guys, when you let sin into your life, when you think all the other areas of your Christian life are going good and everything's fine, and then you let that one little sin slip in, and then another one, and another one, and another one. I'm, I'm not making fun of that one DJ guy. I'm just saying, literally, another sin slips in. All of a sudden, your heart is overrun with sin, and death is living in your heart. Even though you are saved, you're living with a saved soul but a wasted life because you're not following Jesus. This has happened to me so many times in my Christian life, and I think there might be some of you here today where you've let sin slip in, you've let it slip in, and now if you would take back and actually look and examine your heart, you'd realize that it is overrun with sin, just like those flies. Listen, today, today, go home, get with Jesus, and do what I did with those flies. Take them out. Don't let the sin live in your heart. There is a cross and a heart in ev or there's a cross and a throne in every heart and Jesus will not be sitting on that throne until you put yourself on that cross and you die daily. And then you got to be like me with the flies because anytime a little fly comes in, I get it. You got to be watchful of your heart. Anytime the enemy tries to say, "Hey, you know, you've had a long day at school, you're entitled to a little bit of sin." You know, just a little bit, because it feels so good. Here, do this one thing that you like to do. Do this temptation. Disobey your parents this way. Indulge in this thing that you know is wrong. Go for it. That's what the enemy says. And you think it's just one little bit, and then your whole heart is overrun and corrupted. Today, if that's you, go home and deal with your sin. Because, listen, Jesus is declaring war on death. And I want to be on the winning side of that battle. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. It says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It's actually a line from Harry Potter 2. Um, it's like on the tombstone of Harry Potter's parents. So like there's all these like Harry Potter fans who like tattooed it. And they like put J.K. Rowling on it. Like, and it's like, well, actually, God wrote that line. But that's cool. I think it's great, though. It's killer. Like, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. If you're here today and you're afraid of dying and you're struggling with sin, listen, Jesus is out to destroy death. He defeated it on the cross, and one day it'll be completely gone. The last thing I want to say is when I first started talking about death, I talked about just when I got pulled into that water. Remember that story when I got pulled into the water and I had the, um, the bungee cord wrapped around my neck, choking me underwater. There was this fear of death, of being emptied of myself and swallowed up into the ocean, swallowed up into death. There's this great old hymn that I just wanna end with because it's so killer. You guys ready? It says, I love my Lord but with no love of mine, for I have none to give. I love thee, Lord, but all the love is thine, for by thy love I live. I am as nothing and rejoice to be, emptied and swallowed up in thee. Lord, 
I thank you for these students. And thank you, God, that you give me the opportunity to teach them. It's such a humbling responsibility and blessing, God. God, death is so scary at times. The emptiness and being swallowed up into the grave. But God, we know that you give us the alternative for us to be emptied of ourself and swallowed up into you. And when we do that, we become more alive than we ever have been before. <clears throat> Lord, I wanna pray first for anyone in this room who does not know you. I pray that you would lead them to come to know you today and to walk with you. Help them, Lord, to humble themselves and just simply come to you and say, Jesus, I need you, so that they can be saved, snatched out of the devil's hands. And God, for anyone here who has been made alive in you, but they don't pick up their cross daily, they don't die to themselves because they think it's too hard. They think they're losing too much of themselves. God, help them to remember that you say that we gain our life by losing it and allowing you to take it. Help them, Lord, to empty themselves of themselves and be swallowed up in you and your heart. God, I pray that you would help us to not fear death because we know that death is the final enemy that you are committed to destroying. And for anyone here who has lost a loved one, I pray that you would comfort them here today and help them know that you love them. If there's anyone here who's struggling, help them to know today that your love for them is right now. God, we need that love. I pray that you'd bless us and you'd help us and you'd continue to point us towards the cross. We ask this in your name.